Hey, y'all. It's Anna V. And you, my friend, are listening to the All-American Wing Shooting Podcast. I am a hunter, conservationist, mom of two girls I have raised in the outdoors, and a proud owner of a truck full of dogs. My passion is guiding you to confidence, sharing in tradition, and celebrating the true meaning of success in the field. Here we go. Welcome again to another episode of All-American Wing Shooting Podcast. I could not be more excited about today because we have waited months to connect. Our schedules have just been going back and forth, back and forth. But you, Mark McConnell, have been known as the Quail Whisperer. And I am so excited to hear <laughs> your story. That seems like a, a bit of a lofty title, but I appreciate it, yeah. Well, when mm-hmm. I was telling everybody you were finally coming on, I kind of changed it. I now have um, coined you as the Upland Habitat National Treasure. <laughs> <laughs> well, wow, man, my ego is not going to get it all inflated from this. The uh, I appreciate that. They There are many, many, many people doing much larger scale and better work than I in the quail world, but I, I, we do what we can and I very much appreciate it. Well, everyone in my circle sings your praises and I don't know how our paths haven't crossed before now, but those guys at, at Prairie Wildlife and then everything that Jeff Little's ever said, Jeff Barnes is always talking about how his poor son is not going to get any option. He's going straight to Mississippi State. <laughs> um, it's been really exciting. And now I'm like, oh, my gosh, I got to pack up Tater. We got to go have a college tour. You know, she's in the fourth grade. We got to start well, investing in this. <laughs> we start the pipeline early here. We, we, get, we have all kinds of summer camps we can get her into. And yeah. Yeah. She would not want to come home. She's already ready to move in with Benny over there <laughs> at West Point. Yeah. I saw that you had him on the podcast. Uh, I've, he's been an incredible asset to not only to me, but also to, to Prairie Wildlife. That place <clears throat> has just become a whole nother world since Benny started running that line. So it's just impressive to watch. Well, and it allowed Mr. Jimmy to just do what he does best. That's right. Yeah. And right now, like he just needs to be a celebrity. Just put him on camera. <laughs> him and Belle make the best pictures. Um, and I tell Buzz all the time, I'm like, send me some pictures. Like, what have you done there lately? Because they're always iconic. Yeah, but when you put Jimmy on a horse with a cigar in his mouth, it, it's just a whole other world. My uh, Even my mother, I showed her some pictures of him, and she's like, yeah, I need to meet this guy. And I was like, yeah, you, you really need to meet Jimmy. It, it, you just don't you don't meet too many people like him anymore. His generation, unfortunately, is, is there's not a whole lot of them left. And the the work he's been able to do with that property and the, the benevolence he's shown to the university and to my research program has just been tremendously helpful. And yeah, it, it, it'll, it'll be a sad day when that air is over. I know. Well, you are carrying that torch and you're trying to keep this tradition alive. And we should tell people exactly what you do. You are actually, um, I don't know what your doctorate's in, but you are actually Dr. McConnell on campus. Unfortunately, I went through all those degrees. And uh, yes, I'm the assistant professor of upland birds here at Mississippi State. So I do research on quail, turkeys, uh, other grassland birds um, in pine systems as well. My, most of my research program focuses on what we call working landscapes, trying to do wildlife management in agriculture, production, forestry, trying to integrate wildlife conservation into those production landscapes because that's most of the landscape. You know, most of the South is pine woods or agriculture or pasture. And we try to find ways to profitably, hopefully, in- integrate 
wildlife conservation into those. And most of my research focuses on bobwhite quail. I've got some turkey research going, trying to get some woodcock research started. But, you know, I've, I've published papers on waterfowl, rough grouse, quail, grassland birds. You know, just we try to do anything we can to make the landscape more more friendly for the wildlife species we're most focused on. So when I first got started, I like we were talking about, I was totally head over heels involved with Quail Forever and Pheasants Forever. And it was so easy to get involved there because they're so welcoming. The banquets are there. There's always like a project. I had young kids. Like JC was just a teenager. They had a program for her. But I can tell you that now that years have passed, I'm on my seventh season of upland hunting. Um, the love that I have for each species now makes me want to dive in even deeper into habitat and conservation than when I first got started. And that, that was really where I felt like I could contribute because I wasn't such an experienced hunter, you know? And so like, what is your perspective on getting people involved at different stages of, you know, their hunting career? Man, that's a great question. Um, you could have a whole podcast on that, I guess. So if you'd asked me that maybe 10 years ago, I would have had a different answer. But I've had uh, a number of grad students over the years that all came from different backgrounds than I did. I don't think I've yet to have a grad student that had a comparable upbringing to me, which has been good for me. It's 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 been eye-opening and, and very educational. And a number of my grad students have shown up either not from hunting homes or uh, weren't introduced to it for, for one reason or another and then become hunters uh, as adults. So I've gotten to see that happen uh, a number of times now, and it's 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 incredibly eye opening. My approach is to meet people where they are. Um, if you, it's very hard to, as an adult, if you didn't grow up in a hunting family and you didn't grow up with people that took you hunting, it is incredibly hard as an adult to get into that because not only do you have you don't have the know how, you don't have the on the ground information. You need a mentor. You need somebody to take you, even the finances of it, depending on what you're getting into. But what we try to do is just... intimidation factor. People don't want to talk about that, but it's just intimidating it's to intimidating, join. Yeah. It's and, and where... certain, certain hunting groups are more intimidating than others. Right. Uh, uh, I like, you know... Uh, well, are you calling them out? <laughs> I, was, I was going to, and then I was like, you know, I, you know, I don't want to make any enemies yet. The, uh, <laughs> but what I found is... Focusing on the species, on the, on the animal is great, but, but I don't do that anymore because especially a novice hunter, you're probably not going to have too much interaction with the actual critter itself, depending on the hunting. Now, if you're a deer hunter, you're probably not going to see a deer your first time out. If you're a, a quail hunter, at least in the deep South, you're going to spend a lot of miles walking before you find quail, uh, turkeys, you know, that's a whole talk about an intimidating group, but that's, that's a whole different world. Um, squirrel hunting is a great way to introduce people because you know really high success of interaction. So what I've tried to do is focus on where we're hunting and tell a story about the landscape and tell a story about how we manage it, because you can walk through any place you're hunting, especially if you're introducing somebody to upland hunting. And just if you're in good habitat, just to walk through in 10 minutes, you ought to have enough beggars lice on your pants to go, Hey, this is quail food. And then that's something you can actually talk to them about right then and there. Or you can you can talk about food. I, I was hunting with uh, Dwayne Elmore, who's a, a renowned quail professor. He was uh, at Oklahoma State. Now he's at Tall Timbers. We were hunting in Oklahoma a couple years back, and I never hunted in that part of the world, so I was just 
fascinated with the plant community and he's a, you know, he knows them all. So the poor guy couldn't even watch his dog because I kept asking him what this plant was, what that plant was. And because to me, that was just as important of, as a cubby rise. And yeah. so what I try to do is teach them about the, where we're hunting, the landscape, how we manage for it, gauge their interest there. That way, when you do find an animal, whether it's a turkey or a bobwhite or a woodcock or something, then you've got something to relate that back to. You're developing a narrative. You're developing a story. Now we're talking about, hey, we did this to this landscape. We lit this fire two years ago, and now there's a covey here. And I, that's kind of how I try to approach it. If they've, if they've already been exposed to hunting, they just haven't hunted that thing, that particular bird. Like if you take somebody who's a duck hunter and take them quail hunting, we try to really change their expectations on the encounter rate because – a good day in a duck blind, you know, you may see hundreds of ducks, whether you shoot at them or not, it's a different thing. You're not seeing hundreds of quail on a quail or pheasants for that matter. Ever. Ever. Yeah. Ever. So just changing their perspective, but just getting them out and letting them, setting their expectation towards, hey, we're going to take a walk. And on this walk, we're going to talk about this system. We're going to talk about how we manage it. And we'll talk about the animal. And if we encounter an animal, that's a bonus. And what really helps that, especially with upland hunting, what makes it so much easier is the dog. I mean, if you've got a dog, you can get, I think the reason we're seeing such an, inc- an, an uptick in upland hunting and a lot of it's about uh, female upland hunters, mm-hmm. I think the dogs. 100%. Really I make talk that, about that Until Jesus comes back. Like <laughs> <laughs> literally it's all about the dogs and it did suck in women and women. Well, I got involved in the very beginning through PFQF to NAVDA. Because those women have dogs. They worked so tirelessly to make sure their dogs win the ribbons, but they weren't necessarily shooters. And they weren't able to go out into hunt with their dogs, even though their dog was ready to go. Because in that test, they always have a shooter for them, right? Because it's based on them handling their dog. And that opened up so many doors for me to see these women that, I mean, they... They would do anything for that dog. Yeah. And then to give them the skills and say, you were absolutely 100% independent now was amazing. Like that was one of the biggest rewards at the beginning of my career. I think what got my my wife is in the last couple of years, got a little into upland hunting. And I think what got her into it was it wasn't like duck hunting or deer hunting. We have to sit still. You're cold and be quiet. You get to walk, you get to talk, you get to be a little more social and there's this dog that you live with 365 days of the year doing something that my wife had really never seen the dog do unless she was out helping me train. So it, 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 the dog is just the bridge to almost everything in the upland world, in my opinion. And it's hard it's, to, it's hard to explain to people that don't see how happy the dog is in the field and how contagious that joy is to anybody around them. Even if it's not your dog, you right. can't like, you cannot be a grumpy with a bird dog in the field. No. I mean, you know, unless the bird dog's acting a fool. If it's bad. If it's a bad dog, it should stay in the trailer. But you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, and it is contagious, and it does change the environment, getting women in the outdoors for the first time. That's right. And seeing a dog, especially a young dog, whether you've worked with a a buddy of mine's got a Gordon Setter, and seeing her kind of come into her age and learn things, like even when my dog's not down, it's just his dog, I get more enjoyment of seeing his dog figure it out than almost anything. I, I, he had a golden retriever years ago that, that had some challenges uh, picking up ducks and, and we worked really hard with her and we were in North Dakota and she did this, you know, she when it all came together, we were there and, you know, I wrote an article for Gundog Magazine about it because it was such a magical moment to see that dog finally put it all together and figure out, oh, this is what you wanted that whole time. And t- top, t- that's the top five, you know, hunting experiences in my life is 
watching that dog figure out after the struggle he and I went through, especially him, more so him than me, to get her to that point. So, yeah, the dog is what gets people into it. And and you can do that with duck hunting, too. You know, you know, uh, we, we, we do the Delta waterfowl hunt program here. And uh, it's typically almost always every year, almost mostly dominant, dominated by female students that do it. And, you know, in a slow day in a duck blind, having a dog there really helps, <laughs> you know. I know. Um, and, well, you know, yesterday was the Labrador Day, like National Labrador Day. I did not know that. I said, oh, my gosh, I got a post about all the dogs. That really changed my life because, yeah, I was known as the short hair snob. And I was like anti any other dog. And I was so public about it in the beginning. And, and I love my short hairs. But I went to South Dakota. I had a like a life changing moment because being in Georgia and a and an upland hunter, well, the labs that you see down here typically didn't apply to my life. Yeah. Well, then you like dump me out in a field in South Dakota, and I'm like, holy smokes, this dog can do everything, you know? And I was like, okay, so totally changed my attitude. I went from hashtag short hair snob to hashtag happy hypocrite real fast, <laughs> and. From that, I got into back into tournament hunting, but I was traveling with a group and started training with the retriever and the flushing side, and um, it was life-changing. So I posted all these pictures for National Lab Day with all these dogs that were either client dogs or friends, or somebody who had me run their dog when I was competing, and thinking about that moment about what each dog taught me. You know, and I was supposed to, you know, I mean, I was the handler, but every single dog gave me a gift. Look, I've, you can't see it, but back here on my wall, if you, if you were, there's a, there's a framed photo right there. It's an article I wrote for Gundog Magazine several years ago about <clears throat> my great uncle's uh, yellow Labrador named Rainbow, who was hands down the greatest duck retrieving dog I've ever seen in my life. And it's a story about, I'm, I won't tell it on the podcast because that's a long story, but it's a story about the bond between this wonderful retriever and my great uncle as he got older and what that dog would do for him in the field as he got into his later years of hunting where he was falling a lot and you know, couldn't get out in the mud as much. And the the, the story, I watched it happen and, and, and people don't believe don't believe me often that that happened. And I, it, it's the craziest thing in the world. But that moment watching that dog go through the lengths it went to help my, my I think he was in his late sixties at the time, maybe uh, uncle, great uncle get navigate the obstacles of ice and mud. It changed everything I ever believed about the relationship between a, a, a dog and a human. It, it, it was, it was a, such a defining moment in my life because I never would have imagined. I mean, I, I had dogs my whole life growing up, and you know, we spoiled them, and they were close. We never had working dogs. He was my real first exposure to a, to a working dog, mm -hmm. and to see that bond, it, it, it set the bar so high for every dog I've ever had since. I, I named my first retriever after that dog, and 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 and, and it, I've been chasing that level of commitment and emotional connection with dogs ever since, because I've never seen anything like it. Oh, you're going to make me it, cry. Uh, it is something to experience. And it's so hard to put into words. I had a really hard week last week and I, I'm not even sure why, Um, but it goes back to that. And I was like, you know, you go through stages. I call them bar bar stages in life, right? You know that you're wanting to do a certain thing, but you still got to pay your dues to get there. That's what my dad said. Like, you're never going to outgrow paying your dues. And nice. <laughs> and I called Chad and I'm like, we have a dream life, right? Like, 
especially from people watching us on Instagram. Nobody really knows the prices that we pay to live our life. Like you too. Like everybody thinks, oh yeah, Dr. McConnell gets invited to go to all the great places, whatever. (laughs) But, you know, everybody pays dues behind the scenes that nobody knows about. That's right. And I told him, I was like, there's three reasons why I got into doing what I'm doing. And it was... Number one, because I was shooting every day, like shooting pulled me out of a really dark place in life. And the competition of everything kept me on a super high, you know, and that that relationship that you're talking about was something that I think I became almost dependent on it. It was like an addiction because I was tournament hunting. So it was that relationship with a dog that kept me in the field. I don't want to do anything else. Like I literally put off every responsibility. <laughs> I was homeschooled in Hallie Joe, so we could just stay on the road running dogs. And there's something so special and powerful about that relationship with the dog and watching a dog take care of you is like, I'm missing that in my life doing so much business. Like we got to get back to a balance of having more dog time in our life right. because hunting on TV, they take, that's like 20 minutes. You know, and people want to think that's all you do. And it became a job. And I was like, I'm not in this because of a job. It was a passion. And I'm and I don't want this to become a job because I miss the dogs. Yeah. Well, you know, that that happens in this field, too. You know, my my Ph.D. advisor is James Martin's a brilliant quail professor and probably the most dominant quail researcher in the country uh, undoubtedly is. And and, uh, when I worked for him, when I was coming up, he was kind of early in his career. I think he'd be okay with me saying this, but he was early in his career and he was working nonstop. And I can remember like trying to get him to go out hunting. And I took him on a couple of duck hunts that were very unproductive. And, and I remember like, man, like you've got bird dogs. Why don't you hunt more? He was, you'll understand one day. Like, you know, just, he had young kids. He was early in his career trying to get his before tenure and trying to get his career going. And then right about the time we, uh, I I left UGA and and came here, he, he was he was entering a new phase in his career and all of a sudden he had like four bird dogs and he was hunting all the time. And I was like, what the hell, man, what the hell? Like I leave and you start hunting. And, and, and he warned me, he said, Hey, don't, don't do what I did. Like, you know, if you work that hard, you're going to miss out on the other stuff. And of course, it happens. Can't, can't, I got to the point where I'm like, man, I hunted two days a year last year. And so taking his advice and trying to learn from his example and, and, and not wait too far into my career to I, to I forced myself to kind of get those opportunities. And I told my wife, I said, look, I, I just, my, my, my dog, I was hunting with the time was getting old I, and I wanted a new dog. I was like, I need to go ahead and get a dog. And she goes, well, you're not hunting that much. And I was like, I know having the dog will force me yeah. to go. And, and it's worked really great. You know, he's a two year old dog now and, and we've hunted more in the last couple of years than we have the three, four years before that. And of course I had young kids and it was tough, but I, I, I tried to listen to him and say, you know, don't wait until you're post 40 or post tenure to start hunting you know, try to, try to just do it now. And because that's really what we're in this for, you know, we, we, the reason I've spent my entire adult life studying quail is because at the end of the day, I care about them, but I also want to pursue them. And, yeah. you know, if you miss, if you, if you forget that part of it, you know, then that's a problem. And, you know, and he also, he's been really good about redirecting the quail research world to not forget about the quail hunter, you know, yes, there's issues with quail we need to study and we do study them, but the quail hunter is also something we need to be focusing on because I love that if, you bring that up because we bring so all this stuff times. in the quail yeah. hunter is really important. We, we don't need to lose the quail hunter in this pursuit mm-hmm. to not lose the bird. Exactly. Yeah. yeah I, I think the struggle of not having the dog in your life and everything become work um, takes a spark out of what we do. 
And it's so easy to get sucked into the demands of society and the expectations of the social part of everything, just the way life works now. But I can tell you, like, I'll go on trips. I want to be so present. I won't post for like two weeks. I'll forget. I'm like, that is my job. You know, like that's part of my commitment to people and organizations to do that. But I'll just become so present. And then when I started filming and I wasn't on the road all the time, I got rid of some dogs. I sent my stud dog I was raising that I was just so proud of to Benny at Prairie Wildlife. He met me on the, he met me at an exit and picked him up and, and I kept hauling down the road and he's thriving there. And it's so great because I know that, you know, as my short hairs age out, which right now they're nine and six, but they still act like puppies. I'm like, man, are they ever going <laughs> to chill out yesterday? Like it's, we have horrible weather. You know, we had those massive storms. Yeah, come through. And, um, I just didn't even know if I could handle them in the house with this <laughs> yard one in the kennel. Um, but I almost got rid of my trailer. I was like, I don't even need this anymore. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Because the minute that I get rid of my dog trailer, I'm going to end up having access to a trailer full of really good dogs. And so I sent my short hair, no, I sent my lab to Mossy Pond because I'm like, I filmed a whole season of The Foul Life without my own dog. And I was like, I don't do that. I don't sit on the sidelines. And so I didn't have, I didn't have time and I wanted to have the capabilities of doing master if that was possible. And I can't do that on my own. I just, I've not had enough rap reps for that. Um, so that's what I did. I was like, fine, I'll miss the season with her. She'll get on ducks and birds every day and, and she's loving life down there. And so I talked to Lee earlier, um, in the week last week and he's like i think she's only got about three more weeks left so i called chad i was like listen axel is worthless in the desert for the summer he's coming to the south and so i was like <laughs> Haterbug, we're gonna run dogs all summer i'm like maybe we'll run um you know around georgia with our friends and then maybe we'll rent a place in arkansas and go over there and, and stay for a month and run dogs over there and i mean it just opens up a totally different life when you're dog centered i agree Hundred percent. That's the other reason I, you know, as much as I enjoy hunting with my wife, I, I didn't. I never took her much. I took her a little when we were dating, and she never showed just a ton of interest. She she doesn't really have what I call the bloodlust. The kill, killing birds doesn't you know interest her all that much. And uh, but we have four children, and I was working so hard to make sure I took all my kids as much as I could, so I'd rotate them, and you know that, that's exhausting. And then she was like, "Hey, I want to go," and I'm like, "Man, I realized I spent so much time making sure my kids had the experience." I, I, I didn't think about taking my wife and, and so been taking her for the last couple of years, not as much as I'd like, but trying to get her out more. Uh, I don't know if you ever did a shooting lesson with Xavier down at Prairie Wildlife, but oh yeah, uh, uh, he's great. We got her up. My mother-in-law bought her for Christmas or for her birthday one year. I can't remember, bought her a shooting lesson with Xavier and I was like, okay, this will be good. I'll get her, get her tuned up. And <clears throat> the interesting thing about it is it's, 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 she loves it. It's fun for her. But and she's not going to listen to this podcast, so, so I can say this. It's a little bit self-serving as well because the more I get her into upland hunting and she sees what that dog, what I've spent so many hours with that dog for, the more likely it is to get a second dog. And so but I, it's going to be her dog. Well, that's fine. That's that's. And fine. then what's going to happen is she's going to join me with women <laughs> wing shooting, and you're going to be stuck home with four kids. Well, if she if she 
you know, uh, yeah, I talked to Marilyn about that. We're going to Prairie Wildlife in March, so yeah, we're just going to yeah. sign her up. She's going to come with us. I mentioned some of that to Marilyn when I was talking to her a couple months ago. Same thing. Like, you know, she, what happens if my wife gets really into the dogs and mm-hmm. starts training the dog? Then it might be, you know. And the dog's going to love her more. And you're going to be, you're going to be the one pouting at home. <laughs> yeah. I'm really hoping it doesn't come to that. I, I don't think she really has interest in the training yet. Uh, God, I hope not. But uh, she would be a tremendous dog trainer. She, she, um, but yeah, I can say that because she's not going to listen to this. But, uh, but yeah, the idea is to get, I keep telling her and I keep telling the kids, I work all the kids to explain like they're, they are supposed to at all times when they get an opportunity, bring up the fact that, well, if we just had another bird dog, you know, so. Oh I'm, no, she's going to see right through that. Yeah. Well, she catches some of it. Some of the kids are more subtle than others. Some are pretty obvious, but the goal is I definitely need two. <laughs> and uh, hunting with one right now is barely getting it done. Like we went to, we went to Wisconsin this year chasing grouse and woodcock. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The Northwoods is my favorite place. Yeah, last year with a buddy of mine, I worked for Quill Forever and uh, just he and I, and I, Absolutely, felt it was my my dog was nine months old. It was his first it was his first real hunt. It, it was I was just in love, fell in love with the Northwoods, and then yeah. we took a bigger group back this year and did it again. And oh my goodness, yeah, like part of me wants to move to Wisconsin, but but oh, at the end that's of the day, where I train. Like that's where I spent half my year. Now oh, tell really? me that you were not at Rich w- Wisnick's camp. No, no, no. We we okay, well, whatever you do, you need to bully your way into that one. <laughs> yes, that's where you need to be in the Northwoods because he is like a magnet to birds. Really? Yes, I'm telling you. Call him up. You can tell him I outed him. I don't even care. <laughs> yes, that is a fun crowd. Schaefer goes. Um, the Kaisers go. Like it is just a killer camp. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, That's we, the one you got to go to. And they're we, way up north. Yeah, we've been doing it solo. Just we Airbnb a place and then we just kind of download the whatever that map feature that lady puts together for all the forest inventory up there. And and uh, but yeah, it's it's it was very apparent on that trip. We hunted. Uh, we had a couple young dogs with us. So my dog and my buddy, his dog were the most his dogs way tremendous, just a tremendous uh, pointer. Um, we just beat our dogs up so hard the first three days. Yeah. We were hunting twice a day. And we're like, man, we really should have spread them out. But we were just so gung ho and we were into birds. And I was like, God, I just need another dog. So I'm texting my wife pictures of all his sores. I'm like, you know, if I had another dog, you know, I wouldn't have to put him through this, you know. So we, we try so to get more. Were y'all, so were y'all just like kind of in the middle of the state, like the north central? Uh, north central, northwestern, a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So, TFL, the Fowl Life's partnered with Wisconsin. So we filmed there. We have for three years. And this last year, I did a pheasant hunt. And then Brad Heidel with Delta came over. Brad is so great. Like, people don't understand who's working for these organizations. They're going to bat for them. But it's literally people that you would want to be best friends with. They're so incredible. And so we had Brad come out. And Chad's on an upland hunter, so we left him. We left him at the at the lodge. But um, next year, I want to get further north uh, because we did a whole tour. I mean, we showcased everything. We went to Wisconsin game. We went and, like, tailgated in Madison. Oh, nice. We went to the Cheese um, Curd Factory. We went um, – where else did Those we go? Wisconsin's and their cheese curds. My oh, goodness. my gosh. No, we made them. We oh. went to like the family owned one. It was, it's just going to be such an incredible episode and really showcase it. It's special to me because I did spend so much time there in Wisconsin 
I mean, we'd get up and start training. The sun comes up. I don't even know if the sun sets there, you know. <laughs> and if, it's thundering, if you can hear that. Oh, wow. If I lose power, the storm hit us. Um, so the sun comes up. like It looks like noon at 5 a.m. So we'd get up and start the dogs at four, train so we could be done by two, three o'clock in the afternoon. We would hit the grouse woods before the sun go down, eat at the bar, come home, let dogs out again, go to bed, do it all over again, just so that we could grouse hunt as soon as season open. And I got addicted to it. And so we didn't get to showcase that on the episode last year. So as soon as those dates are set, I'll send you a message and you guys can come up and... We'll take the camera crew through the grouse woods and see what um, that looks like. We, the first year we went, because we, my dog was young and I wanted something that would hold good that we could get good contacts on. So, you know, we were going for the woodcock and the grouse were kind of a bonus. And yeah. This year we had a taste for it. All right, now we, we want a few more grouse than, than, than woodcock. And we, uh, like I said, it, it, we, we did better on, I don't know, I guess we did better on grouse this year than last year, but the, that whole, the whole, the amount of public land up there, the, it's just it just blows my mind. We don't have that down here. We don't have county no. forest land that you can just that's good for the critter after that we can just mm-hmm. access. So it's precious. It's a precious culture that they yeah. have. And, and people got, have no tur- idea about it. Yeah, and then I got to turkey hunt. My wife and I got to turkey hunt there that spring and um last spring and fell in love with that as well. So Wisconsin is really high on my list right now. They uh, mine too. They and hope, I'm telling you, it just gets better. Right it just gets better because those little country bars up there where all the hunters are and and it's so fun because you pull in and it's either bear hunters or bird hunters you know and everybody's got their dogs in the back and stuff and everybody's just telling their stories and it's just like seven back in time it's it's just a really cool special place upland hunting culture if if people can just if we can just expose more people to it um uh, it's it's so addictive the dogs you know if you open a cover your eyes magazine and you know what do you see you see dogs guns, bourbon, cigars, and wine. Those are things that everybody loves. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but the cool yeah. thing about it is across the nation, everybody has their own culture within a culture, right? Sure. So we all prioritize the dog number one. I remember the first time I went to Pheasant Fest. And for any bird hunter that has not been to Pheasant Fest, you have to experience that once. Yep. Because I was not prepared for it. I remember being at SHOT Show and miserable. <laughs> <laughs> These people are not like me. And somebody came up to me and said, don't worry. When you get to Pheasant Fest, like your people will be there. And I'm like, holy smokes. It's like Sunday morning church of bird hunters. All the men are wearing their pressed hunting gear. Everybody's got on blaze orange. Everybody's got a dog on a lead. There's like how many many thousand dogs are there? They have what? How many people do they have? 30,000 people they come through in a weekend? Yeah, I think it's about 20, 28, 30,000 over the weekend. The dog parade last year, there were well over 100 dogs there. And because uh, I took my wife last year, and um, the dog parade, I mean, that was that was the highlight. Oh, so, so what he's talking about is when they ring the bell and they kick off the weekend. So they open the doors to the floor. There's a huge ceremony. And they call it the dog parade. And they, they try to represent every species of a hunting dog in the uplands or waterfowl, whatever. Every single dog is represented. And Taterbug was like four years old and she got to be Grand Marshal. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, it was so fun. And it, I don't know. It's just, it's a really special place. And I just can't seem to get back because it overlaps with so many things. And I hate that the outdoor industry does that. Yep. Um, 
But it is a special place, and if you haven't been, you should prioritize it one year. Um, you will probably return if you go once. Um, but, yeah, it is really cool, and it's hard to put into words seeing so many people that love the same thing as you, and you never meet a stranger. I agree. It's phenomenal. I've, I've been, I think, two or three times. I guess this year will be my third. And, uh, yeah, I can't get enough of it. Now my wife's hooked on it, so – uh, I, usually I'm, uh, I've spoken at it a couple of times and, and, and I, I think my wife will probably want to go even when I'm not on the agenda somewhere because she enjoyed it so much. Okay. I know you're on a schedule. I want to ask you something because now that we, we talked about this a little bit earlier, the conviction and just falling in love with certain species and, and having that attachment, it's like, I love hunting these birds, but yet they are so majestic. And I will tell you that I had another aha moment this year. Duck season has been horrible for everybody, and everybody wants to talk about how horrible duck season was. Well, it was, but it also caused some of us to slow down and really pay attention to the details, right? And it changed our focus and our perspective on that. So we took Hallie Joe to Arkansas during um, the Wings Over the Prairie event, and so... She's got this thing. She wants to start duck calling contests and stuff. So we're like, we're going to throw you in the thick of it, kid. (laughs) Her mentality, I mean, she's 10, right? She's like, I mean, how good can these people in Georgia really be? (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so anyway, so I took her over there. So anyway, we were, we were filming and, and hunting at Prairie Wings and it was her first time in flood timber. It was my first time in Arkansas flood timber and, we were covered up in wood ducks, and I love a wood duck. I'm a Georgia girl, right? I mean, they're so beautiful. You cannot discriminate against the wood duck, and I hate that people are just so negative about them or, like, they're just common. Mallard snobs, yeah. I call them. Yes, okay. Like, I mean, I love mallards, too. I mean, I always have mallard nails. During hunting season, I got mallard green nails. But here's the thing. We have a family farm in Georgia, and um, it was a golf course. And we thought we were going to run cows on it. And then it was actually better business to turn this into a venue and lease land that was already fenced (laughs) for cows. Um, So you can still kind of see the fairways, but we've done a lot of work here, lots of grading. We had to clean up a lot of um, drainage problems where it just wasn't maintained. And so we've added a two acre pond. But here's the deal. My dad likes everything to be perfect and pristine and we used to have so many geese here, and we had duck haven in the back. We had way too many um, beavers, and it just caused a nightmare for a venue. But it was a duck haven and a goose haven, and I loved seeing them. I loved hearing them. I mean, you get into that hunting mentality, right? You start walking outside just to go air dogs somewhere, and you're like, man, we got a good win today. I told you, I was like, I've become the biggest dork this year because we're not in hunting mode when we're at home, but still we get in the routine of picking up on what's going on around us, you know? And this is the first year I think I've felt so convicted at the work and the money that was put into this piece of property to make it beautiful for the community when it trashed habitat so you can preach to me so that i can go preach to my dad i like we should have one pond i'm like why can't we put up a pretty sign like at dollywood that just says duck habitat and just educate people like we make this gorgeous bronze sign like it's some you know protected thing you know and just tell a story and just let it grow up so is the question 
I just need to know like what we could do because I feel really bad about seeing how clean this is after being in the flooded timber and seeing oh, all the, the ducks and everything. You just see how beautiful it is. Knowing that that was here, we like we had the wood ducks here. Yeah. And now we so don't really have What any. I used to tell people was... Because um, there's probably a lot of people listening that want their ponds to be cleaned up. You know, it gets rid of the snakes. The kids sure. can fish like... You know, it looks prettier, all the things, but at the same time, like there's a consequence to that. Yeah. So what I used to tell people was uh, any habitat you're managing for, wood duck habitat, quail habitat, turkey habitat, deer habitat, habitat's rarely pretty. And I used to tell people that, and I t- I've told people that for years. And I, I don't try to say that as much anymore. What I think we need to do is we need to, we need to change our perception of what is pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of pristine banks and everything there's good reasons why people, their brain that goes, oh, that, that's that's pretty. Just why everybody's yard is pretty and why farmers don't like weeds on their field edges, right? That 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 that, that looks good to them. But that's what we've got to change. Um, the what is considered pretty, and I and I don't I don't want to blame the kind of old growth redwood people for this, but the idea that you know a forest should be just enormous trees and a clean forest floor, that's not what a forest should look like. I mean, a redwood right. forest is a redwood forest, but outside of the redwood world, it's not what it should look like. A pine forest shouldn't look like that. A, a bottomland hardwood forest surely shouldn't look like that. Uh, having a healthy forest, it makes it, it's going to look pretty rough, you know? And so I think what we've got to do is we've got to change our perception of what it should look like. Now, this is not something we're going to do in my lifetime, probably not in my kid's lifetime, but if we can expose to people that uh, a, a small pond with, you know, some broom sedge and some trees around the edge of it, that that mental image, that snapshot in your head, that is the goal. That is the beauty. I think that's what it's going to take because because you brought up two issues. One is the aesthetics and one is the the use of it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if you don't if you don't want if you want your kids to be able to fish on a bank, you're, you're probably going to create something that makes it easier for your kid to navigate the bank and avoid or at least be able to see snakes sooner or whatever. So I've seen some people like in that situation. uh you know, they'll put out some, uh, when the, the pond's low, they'll put out some brim beds or something, some structure, and then they'll weedy little areas. Hey, this is, there's, here's three fishing spots around the pond. That way the whole pond, the whole bank doesn't get, you know, cleaned up. But what you're describing, it, it, this is, it's, it, everybody's dealing with this. And the issue is what's good for wildlife is rarely what we consider to be aesthetically pleasing. But, but people in Arkansas in the flooded timber work tirelessly. To have proper habitat. I mean, we saw deer running through there. You know, it was amazing because we were still, because we didn't have all the ducks to keep us distracted, right? And I, it just put me in my tracks. I'm like, we should have a habitat haven in our backyard. It's tough. Um, it, it is tough. Yeah. So don't beat yourself up too hard. You're 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 doing more than most people. But it, it's it's very hard, especially if you've got a venue and you want people to yeah. come look at it. It's very hard to get people that are going to pay to use your venue to see, oh, like for to see something like that is pretty. For example, the, the best example in the South is is uh, briars or brambles, blackberry bushes, right? Everyone hates walking through a, a briar patch, right? Like it's miserable. And if you're not wearing chaps or gloves, you're going to get shredded. Your dog's going to get shredded. It's just part of it. They are ugly as sin to the average person. Uh-huh. during the winter because there's no fl- leaves on them. There's no flowers or certainly not any blackberries. It's just a bramble thicket. Pound for pound, it's probably the most important plant in the Southeast for a suite of game species. 
Deer eat it, quail eat it, turkeys eat it. It's great structure for quail. It is pound for pound one of the most important plants in the southeast for wildlife. But it's ugly. And I've had landowners call me uh, and ask me, hey, can, how, what do I need to spray this with? I got to get rid of it. I, I had a, 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 a preserve in Georgia, South Georgia, one, not not uh, the Red Hills, just north of the Red Hills, called me one time and like, hey, I need to be able to kill this blackberry without killing my longleaf. And I was like, why? He said, because the quail hold up in there and they won't flush out. I was like, well, get a better dog. And he said, no, my, my dog won't go in there. I was like, well, get a flushing dog. Send a send the English cocker in there or something, you know. He yeah. said, no, I want to kill it. I said, man, if you kill it, you can't kill blackberry and say you're managing for quail. It just, it just, it just doesn't work that way. So we've spent years trying to, all the quail people I know, trying to say, hey, like blackberries, yes, they suck to walk through. But they're so important in winter and they're really important in summer. So we just have to change a perspective of what is beautiful and what is aesthetically pleasing. And the only way to do that, and I think Quail Forever and Felt Pheasants Forever have done a really good job of this on their pollinator planting mission. Yeah. If you look at they some of those. They do a lot of education for yeah. the public on this. And look, to their credit, now they're, they're showing pictures of pollinator plants in the summertime, which is when you should show them. Yeah. Those things are not pretty in the winter to the average person, right? But uh, we were hunting through one the other day, and I think it's pretty because I know what the potential is. Right. But I think we just need a massive educational campaign to say, look, wildlife, what we consider wildlife habitat, especially for, for the game species that we're interested in, it's not pretty. Like a lot of people think a deer habitat is like a food plot. Okay, food plots are a great way to kill deer, and they can be a huge asset to supplement your nutritional plane on a property. No question there. But most of your most of the what's filling up your deer's uh, multiple stomachs is not coming off that food plot. It's coming off the woods in between those food plots. Mm -hmm. And what's in those woods, if it's good deer cover, it ain't pretty, you know. So I think we just have to reeducate the public as best we can that what's pretty and what's not, because otherwise I don't see another way around it. I don't see a way to integrate it too much. It's just too much distance between a pristine mode landscape like a golf course and, you know, and what, like, for example, oh there are some golf courses. If I go, if I sit down to dinner tonight with the parents and say, listen, we need to dedicate the two acre pond to habitat. I understand like, you know, cause it's a fall festival, right? So everybody comes here and they've got the big slides and the jumpy pillows and there's a little putt-putt course throwback to the golf course. There's yeah. the corn maze. Like, I mean, it's, it's a full blown festival in the backyard and it's fun, but it's an opportunity like, I'm like, we have thousands of people every weekend. We need to be telling them reality, you know? And I wanted to do like a, instead of a petting zoo, I wanted to put game birds out there and just have people walk through and see them and kind of talk about, I mean, how many people have really seen a pheasant? Not Probably many. not a whole lot, not you know, <laughs> where we live. Um, I just thought that would be so cool. Or a chucker. I mean, we love eating chucker. Chucker is like one of our favorite things, but... We trained with them, so we've eaten yeah. a lot of chuckers. So, you know, and it's, um, I don't know, I just thought that would be the coolest thing to have. And then my dad would probably freak out and say, you're going to bring these geese back after they, like, they, you know, they trashed the, the, oh, yeah. <laughs> the corn maze. One year the crows came in, and, oh, the poor corn maze just went. It was only half a maze because the crows got to it, you know. The, and so it is kind of a balance when you talk about your purpose versus doing something where you can have a clear conscience too. That's right. So, you know, what well, you know, you can take the mitigation approach and you can say, okay, on this property, I'm going to do these things because that's the best way to make money. But then I'm going to have this other 
piece of the property, this other property where I'm going to kind of offset it. Right. And a lot of people do that. You know, they, they try to, you know, this is, this is the moneymaker. This is how we, how we, how we give back, you know, kind of to the landscape. Yeah. And, but that, you know, that's, that's not cost free. <laughs> you're, you're, I guess we're doing that. I mean, we're you know, doing that. Just try where you can. Don't beat yourself up too much. At the end of the day, you know, there's other ways to have an impact on, on the resources, right? Uh, through your, you know, your social media and your, your broader mission, bringing people to the outdoors, exposing them to conservation. You know, the, the, the article I was talking about back there, the, I had a old retired fisheries professor who writes a lot of books about outdoor stories named guys named Don Jackson. He's written four just tremendous, tremendous books. Each chapter is just a hunting story, either from his childhood or adulthood. And, um, he edited that, that article for me before I submitted it to Gundog Magazine. And he told me, he wrote a note on it. I still have it. He said, Mark, you'll probably publish many scientific papers in your life. He goes, but mark my words, stories that connect people to the outdoors will have a larger impact to conservation than any public scientific publication you ever publish. And it got me thinking, like, you know, what is the point of all this research we do if we don't, at the end of the day, get people connected to the outdoors and get people connected to the resource? So you're doing a ton of other stuff that is beneficial. And um, it's good that you're trying to integrate it there. But, you know, that's sometimes you're pushing a rope uphill uh, and it's, you know, it, it's just hard to make it work. Um, but like I said, anything you can do on that landscape, the, the, your property to make it more friendly. And, you know, the best way to educate the public is, like you said, put birds out there or put a sign that says, hey, this is this is we're managing this for whatever. I, yeah, I just think that would courses, be so- golf courses in general have tremendous opportunities uh, in the rough areas and the areas that separate uh, uh, fairways to oh, those are create those are all manicured. I mean, we still got pines out here, but who? My dad, he is a perfectionist of the elite. You could light a fire in those pines and have all kinds of beautiful plants coming up. And in the summertime, when people are playing it, it, I don't know how old the pines are, but uh, it could look really pretty in between those. Um, yeah, that is something. Maybe maybe I'll make you some videos and get you to <laughs> give me a little speech and then I'll get on it. Um, okay, so you, I love this story that you just brought up about connecting because that's what happened to me. I had mentors that came into my life. I tell this all the time how I never had a female mentor, which is really what sprung me to start and launch Women of Wing Shooting and become a place to serve women where they are and connect them so that they can get started and the thing that that tugs their heart, they can find their place in the world, right? Well, then you just talked about the story of connecting people to the outdoors. This is what I had written to ask you, and we can close on this. I love this. So what can the hunter that has a full-time job, car full of kids, running to school and ball practice do to make a difference in the outdoors? Because they still have a heart for it, but their lifestyle dictates a certain schedule, you know, and they can't deviate from that. So what can they do to make the biggest impact? Speaking purely in my personal capacity here, uh, I would argue the biggest thing they can do to have an impact is whenever they get the chance in between soccer practice and band practice, whatever, take those kids hunting. Whether those kids have a gun in their hand, my son carried around a little toy gun for the first several years before Mm -hmm. I ever let him get his hands on her. And then an empty BB gun. Yep. Yeah, and you just my girls, out. my girls are um, seven and six, and they still they're, they're not really interested. I mean, they want me to shoot stuff, but they're not interested in doing themselves. So they they you know they go out with Hello Kitty purses and, and, <laughs> and 
frozen stuff. All they want to do is be outside. I'll make this analogy and connect it to dogs back if I can. Um, one of the best dog training books I've ever used was uh, Joanne Bailey's uh, How to Help Gun Dogs Train Themselves. I would argue it's one of the best ever written. It's primarily what I use for my dogs. And one of the, in the first seven chapters, uh, she makes this tremendous case that if it's a well-bred bird dog, it's going to do most of what it's supposed to do. You just need to spend time with it a field. Just every morning, walk your dog somewhere out, not on a gravel parking lot or not in the sidewalks. Take your dog out into the field. And if you spend enough time with your dog and let your dog experience the sounds, the smells, and the sights of the outdoors, they're going to point. You just have to give them a little, you know, a little bit of you know, direction and finesse. They're going to recall as long as you don't screw something up. They're, they're going to do most of it. It just, th- those things are kind of secondary things. You just have to tune up. A well-bred dog's going to do the right things. If you just spend time outdoors with them, you and the dog. And I, as my wife tells me, I need to quit making dog training alleys with children, but a lot of it's the same. <laughs> if you just spend time with your kids outdoors, just take them hunting, whether you're hunting or just take them out. Make sure we don't lose another generation that they just don't know what the prairies are supposed to look like. They don't know what the flooded bottomlands of, of, of the Mississippi Louisville Valley are supposed to look like. Because I read a statistic years ago when I was in college. I don't know if this still holds, but essentially, if you're a hunter and you have three kids, the probability that one of them is going to be a hunter as a dog, it's just one of them, right? It's, it's like you're, you're losing two-thirds each generation. So it was something like that. I'm, I'm probably bastardizing the math, but... Um, and my dad's a good example. My dad had three kids. I'm the only one who's a hunter as an adult, right? And I and I think that's most people I know. It probably something happens like that, or you lose all of them. Okay. If anything, if they want to have an impact, I would argue the impact is getting those kids exposed to the outdoors. There's you know all these books, no, Last Child in the Woods, all this. There's this huge campaign to make sure kids understand that what the outdoors are supposed to be. And we don't want kids thinking this is a soapbox. I'm going to get on. We don't want kids thinking you can't interact with the outdoors. One of the things that drives me crazy is the people that say, Oh, don't touch that salad. If a kid's in a Creek and he finds, Oh, don't touch it. Don't touch it. Are you nuts? They need to touch it. Right. I've heard people say stuff like, Oh, if you know, your oils on your hand will hurt the frog. Okay. Maybe. I don't know. I, I doubt it. Uh, I've touched a lot of frogs in my life. Kids have to experience the outdoors. They have to touch it. They have to grab the dirt. They have to smell it. They have to grab frogs. They have to grab salamanders. They have to flip over things and find crawfish. They have to chase armadillos through the grass. They have to have a physical interaction with the outdoors to have a connection. Because if we tell kids they can't touch stuff, like when I was a kid, I was don't touch the butterfly. Okay, yeah, probably not great to be touching butterfly wings. I really don't know, but it's probably true. But if you tell kids they can't touch this stuff, you're never going to get them close enough and interactive with it enough to actually appreciate it. I mean, just lightning bugs. Like that's a, Put them in a jar. There's plenty yeah. of lightning bugs. They're probably going to die. Maybe yeah, let them I mean, too. everybody does that. Let them okay. have the lightning bugs. One of the things uh, Charles Darwin did when he arrived on the Galapagos islands, the first thing he did was take his hat and kill several birds. The first thing, the second thing he did was ride on the back of a Galapagos tortoise. Now the, the most important person in the evolution of ecology the first thing he did was consumptive use, okay? He killed him, and he looked at him, and he studied him. And had he not had that experience on the Lapkos Islands, we may not have understood everything we know about ecology now because of that work. So take your kids outside. Whether they have a gun in their hand does not matter to me. Take them outside. Let them smell stuff. Let them touch stuff. Let them get covered in mud and let them touch anything that's not venomous or poisonous. 
and let them interact with the outdoors so that they have a connection. That's something they're going to want to protect when they become a voting age. All right. That's my soapbox. I'm sorry. I love it. I love it. And nobody's ever said that on the podcast before. <laughs> I'm, no, I, I'm, I hope they have. <laughs> well, I mean, not from that perspective. I mean, everybody talks about getting your kids in, in hunting and, and the ways of going hunting, right? From the preserve to public land, that story. You know, we tell that almost every episode. But just get your kid in the yard. I mean, you essentially just said, take your kid to the yard. Something. A lot of people aren't doing that. No. And it's hard. I, I get it. Like I said, I, I don't live on a bunch of land. I grew up on eight acres kind of in the woods. I was spoiled rotten. My parents gave me free reign. My mother would call out in the summer just to make sure I was there. She'd just yell my name. And as long as I responded, she'd be like, okay. And I didn't go inside at all. I came in for lunch if I needed to. I was just left to explore the world. Now, I have not given my kids that because I don't live in, a, in an area where I can do that. But I take them out to Prairie Wildlife or I take them to the refuge. I take them anywhere I can and just let them do whatever they want as long as it's not too terribly destructive. Like I let them play in puddles and even when I probably should, um, I've got a great video going back to dogs when I was getting my, my current dog to swim behind my house. I was probably trespassing a little bit, but it's for sale. No one's out there, but there's a little low spot in the woods where it kind of gets, it kind of holds water after a big rain. And I was trying to get the puppy to swim through it and he was a little reluctant. So I went back to the house I got my girls. They were five and six at the time and it was warm enough. And I said, girls, you see this little flooded area pretend it's a swimming pool and i mean i'd walk through it to make sure there were no snakes around or anything and my girls just went nuts they're wading around they're covered head to toe in the muddiest yuckiest water you can imagine and then my puppy goes well if the girls are out there i'm gonna go and i've got this great <laughs> video of him when he's about this big swimming circles around my little girls and they got covered i came home my, my wife was not happy but she wasn't mad but you know, they, were, they were very gross. Their hair was full of stuff. The dog was just as wet. But my girls remember that. And then, you know, I doubt the dog remembers it. But that, that's how I got my dog to swim is I put my girls in the water in a muddy little puddle and just let them go crazy. So awesome. I don't think you outgrow it because, you know, I told you I posted about the labs yesterday. Yeah. There's a picture of me in a training pond with my mm-hmm first favorite lab that changed my whole life and um we would train on hot days and as soon as we got done training we were in the pond with the dogs like just (laughs) having fun like you know and that was great because they don't have poisonous snakes really up there in wisconsin and so you feel really safe (laughs) just jumping in with your chacos on i used to hunt with a standard poodle she's 13 now she's retired and she had a lot of trouble swimming she would just paw straight in the air it was not (laughs) uncommon and uh, I had to get out in a lake that I was living on time, get, jump out of my kayak and uh, and just, just to get her to swim. And, um, you know, it got to the point where that was the only way to get her in. And then, you know, she was fine after that. But, yeah, there's you, we should never be too afraid to, to jump in the water with our dogs. That's 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 maybe a life lesson we should all remember. Well, it was so good having you on today. I'm so grateful we finally connected. I think there is endless things we could talk about. You've got to come back on. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope I didn't get too, uh, too, I I tend to rant a little bit and and get off topic. So I hope I stayed close to what you were asking. No, and we've got some projects coming up too um, with SCI Foundation and stuff that I definitely Mm -hmm. want to see if if it's your schedule um, with your calendar and, and if it's something that you'd be interested in joining us. I think that it highlights your knowledge and your heart really well. I appreciate that. Happy to help any way I can. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, until next time, um, we look forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Breaking as I leave this sleepy town. The sun is slowly rising and the fog is on the ground.